dipping the other times? Yeah, you know. You, you wear, you wear Athletic shorts with your cock all out? Yeah, I hate that shit. That's the problem. That's why swimwear has that netting. Mm-hmm. Holds yeah, your cock yep. in place. Yep, and it keeps it on your ass, too. Unfortunately, it also kind of chafes up in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chafes the head of your penis. Yeah. If you're a circumcised yeah. man like I am. It's definitely not comfortable, especially outside of the no the pool. No. And then you look at ladies' beach volleyball, and they get to wear a belt as their bikini bottom and two tassels for their top. I'm surprised they let that shit fly, man. Not only do they let it fly, Herschel, the German team at the last Olympics were penalized for wearing shorts and t-shirts. So they could cover themselves up better? Yep. It was not allowed. That's some bullshit. I think so. But also, it's my favorite event at uh, the Summer Olympics. Or one of them, anyway. I will say this. Because... It's hot. The spandex and shit, it does give you a movable advantage. And that does, you know, baggier, yeah. But yeah. if they want to do it, let them. Yeah, if they want to wear, like, so it would be like an Under Armour shirt mm-hmm. and shorts that they were wearing pretty mm-hmm. much. It was still athletic and yeah. drawn to their bodies, but yeah, it was just smaller. Fuck them. Fuck them if they can't take a joke. You yeah. should wear whatever you want to. Want to, to wear, yeah. When you're playing beach volleyball. As long as it ain't making you play better than the other team. Yeah. As long as it's not laced with meth. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bumble Butt Podcast. We're back. We're here. We're We're here. Yeah. Just, uh, (laughs) we're back and we're here, boys. Yep. Another week down. Yep. In the books, baby. Another few to go. Not in the books yet. Until we're dead. I mean, who knows, knows? honestly. Today, tomorrow. I don't know why we're excited about another week. Yeah. Or we could just be vampires. Well, that'd be fine. Do you know any? They would, would you think they would reveal that shit to me? I would. Because it would be like, yeah, you, you would just be like a crazy black guy. Yeah, if I said, oh, it's a fucking vampire. Like, yeah. Or like, I know vampires. Like, okay. I guess honestly, Herschel started if a, doing honestly, crack. Honestly, if a vampire told me they was a vampire, I probably wouldn't even tell nobody. Well, of course not. That's a, ter- that's a one-way ticket to getting your throat ripped out. Mm-hmm. Just keep that to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Did you watch this week's Atlanta? I uh, did. I yeah, I did. I did. Watch Good that. one. It was yeah. Great one. Invest in your hood. Mm-hmm. That's was, was, so they, funny. Yeah, but they didn't get it. And they do the Calvin Klein ad, and that's just so. God, that was wonderful. Don Glover, it. you did it again. Another TV show recommendation this week is on HBO Max. It's called Tokyo Vice. Guess what? Reporters, police, gangsters, you can't get much better in a television show. The Wire has proved me that. So. Did you see that um, new little joint they got coming out, the, the makers of The Wire? No. Yeah, I forgot. City of Lies. All right. Maybe I could be I could be butchering that name. Well, I'm in there. Of course I know you would know, but they got some notables in there. Here we go. In the same nondescript three-story house located at 10 Rillington Place in London's Notting Hill, North Kensington, two different murderers were arrested and prosecuted. Both would be sentenced to die, but there are many who believe only one of them should have been. Mm -hmm. Then again, they also both confessed to the murder. Mm -hmm. Hands down, the most famous of the two suspects was John Reginald Halliday Christie. Halliday. In 1938, he moved into 10 Rillington Place's ground floor apartment with his wife Ethel, his dog, and his kitty cat. Mm. He had exclusive access to the back garden. Exclusive? These were Victorian row homes, which were rented by the floor. So they kind of looked like the full house 
outside mm-hmm. house. Do you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah, San Francisco. Yeah, but they were much shittier, much dirtier, much smaller, and they rented by the floor. Right. So you had no fucking space for yourself, basically. Mm-hmm. 10 Rillington Place had the extra disadvantage of sharing their wall with a factory. They could Ooh. hear the trains and workers pulling in and out all day night, and soot would constantly come through the cracks. Dude, there had to be a turnout rate for that apartment, though, bro. You would think so. Like, you can't stay there no more than... But that was how a lot of this area was. Was, okay. Mm-hmm. So they probably got used to it then. The two apartments upstairs, along with the Christie's, had to share the same outhouse as there was no running water. Christy was 40, quiet, and could blend into any situation. He had pale blue eyes and damn near ginger hair with an enormous forehead. Ethel Christy, his wife, was a bigger girl and very passive. With no running water? Yeah, no running water. They had... uh, This sounds disastrous. They had an outhouse to shit and pee in, and then they had a separate wash house with, like, buckets of water that they could wash up with. Okay, okay, so they go to a well or something? Acquaintances believe Ethel was afraid of Christy Mm -hmm. and as such did whatever he said. Outwardly, they seemed a nice enough couple who were devoted to privacy Mm -hmm. and to each other. Christy was born and raised in Yorkshire. His father was a high-strung man who got his anger out by whipping his children constantly and brutally. Christy had four older sisters who were Mm -hmm. physically and mentally abusive to him, and as such, he was always too effeminate for his father, Mm -hmm. so his pops started paying him less and less attention. And that was fine with Christy, because he was a mama's boy through and through. Mm. Christy never made any lifelong friends as a kid. That's not to say he didn't do well socially in Mm -hmm. school. He played sports, sang in both the church and school choirs, and became a scout master. He must didn't want to become homies with nobody then. Yeah, that's probably it. He He's probably one of kept those him introverts. At, he gave yeah. gave him the old Heisman, kept him yeah. at arm's reach. Which you is know? cool too, man. There ain't no feelings. You don't have feelings. Yeah, if you don't want to hurt somebody yeah. and you don't want to get hurt, then yeah. that's you know Much just shut off. Yeah. Damn, that's sad though. But they're probably still sure you still talk to motherfuckers. Yeah, but, yeah. that's the thing. He was involved yeah. in all sorts of social yeah. activities. He just he just wouldn't kick it. Yeah, he just never that's cool. never like, forged a bond with anybody. I'm good. When Christy was eight, his abusive grandfather on his mother's side passed away. Mm. This man absolutely terrified young Reggie as far back as he could remember, and when he was asked if he wanted to see the body, Christy agreed. It was an amazing feeling that washed over the eight-year-old. Mm. He wasn't uncomfortable in front of his jeepa's body. He was relieved. It was warm, fuzzy, and generally pleasant to stand in the lifeless presence of something that had caused so much stress and tension. Damn, that's crazy, even for a funeral. You gotta feel a little something, right? Yeah, relief. All he felt was relief. Mm-hmm. That this but tormentor. Warm, warm, yeah, I'm warm and fuzzy. He's got the warm and fuzzies. Mm-hmm. Throughout his entire life, Reg Christie was sexually dysfunctional. This stemmed from an incident at 10 where he'd seen one of his sister's bare legs with her long dress pulled up to the knee. And it was a sister he absolutely resented. Ludovic Kennedy, author of book 10 Rillington Place, wrote, There's nothing unusual in this. It's often that little boy's first naked body is one of their sisters, but in Christie's case, it disturbed and aroused an already existing tense situation. Mm. He had always resented his four sisters bossing him around, and now to rub salt in the wound, he was physically attracted to them. They aroused his masculinity and then stifled it, day after day, month after month, year after year. I know he hated that. Yep, and there was four of them versus him. Mm Mm-hmm. There had to have been times he thought about the calm his dead grandpa brought him and wished all of them the same. Damn. 
Christie developed a deep hatred of women, especially those who tempted him, because he knew his equipment wouldn't show up for the game, and he'd mm. never be able to satisfy them. So it's not the women. Yeah, it is also. It's all of it. Your dick don't work. It's all of it. The, oh, the you women mean is, it's not the women's fault? Yeah, Absolutely he, not. Like, dude, he just mad at him because he can't. Yes, he, that's Even if he do get him in the bedroom. He can't do anything about it. And he think they gonna talk about him. That might happen. Might. He was also terrified of girls, so those two mixed into a pretty rotten cocktail. Mm-hmm. He soon earned the nicknames Can't Make It Christy and Reggie No Dick when his early Ooh. attempts at adolescent rutting failed. You were absolutely you spot on the nose there about you, the nicknames. You don't want to be get your dick talked about at a young age. Can't no. Make It Christy. <laughs> Reggie, no dick. Dude, you don't want to get... Brutal. Especially around, like, other girls. Because it's already the social thing when you go to school. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. Christy left school at 15 Mm -hmm. and became a projectionist at the local picture house. Mm -hmm. Almost immediately, World War I broke out, and he entered the service as a signalman, where he excelled. Mm -hmm. He only saw action once, and he was knocked out and temporarily blinded by a mustard gas attack. He also lost his voice in this attack and remained silent for three years, but doctors think that was a hysterical reaction and not actually a physical ailment. Mm. Kind of like our good boy, Dude, Blythe. Yeah, I can see now. Yeah. Okay. I just think he was bullshitting. You, you think, winner? You think, yeah. I'm okay, sir. I just think I'm he okay. was bullshitting. No, I think he, he went was actually hysterically blind. blind, yeah. Mm. He got a medical discharge and returned to his job at the theater. In 1920, mm-hmm. he married Ethel Simpson Waddington, even though he was still speechless. His sexual dysfunctions continued. Marrying Ethel didn't magically cure him. Mm. Reg visited prostitutes regularly, starting from the age of 19. He was able to perform with them, as there was no expectation on their end, but that just humiliated him all the more that he couldn't do it with regular girls. His visits to brothels still continued long after his wedding. <laughs> Early on in the marriage, Christie left the theater to become a postman. He stole some mail and was sent to prison for three months. He kept his job and a few years later would be put on postal probation for accusations of violence. I wonder what he stole. There were also rumors of him using prostitutes on the clock. Damn, on a clock? Well, you gotta pay for him somehow. <laughs> Ashamed, he left Ethel and went off to London. She stayed behind in Sheffield and became a typist. A quick four years later, Christie found himself in prison yet again, this time for nine months on two counts of theft. After his release, he lived with a prostitute and went from job to job trying to find one that fit. During this time, he whacked the prostitute over the head with a cricket bat and got himself six more months in prison. When he got out, his life was still directionless, and Reg was living in a perpetual Groundhog's Day. Mm-hmm. A few years later, he was arrested again for stealing the car of a priest that was trying to help him out. During this stay in prison, he wrote his wife Ethel and asked if she might come live with him in London upon his release. After a nearly a decade apart, Ethel rejoined her hubby in London in 1933. Mm. She was 35, lonely, and had no idea what she was in for. So she was ready to have some sex probably too. And it was 1933, so what was the life expectancy, like 50? Mm-hmm. I mean, she was damn near there. Damn, dickless and about to die so... Dickless and alone. That's a bad combo, too. That's right. They were, they were both dickless and alone. 
Soon after they were remarried, Christy was hit by a car which began a long stage of hypochondria. He called in sick a lot and visited his two doctors a combined total of 173 times over the next 15 years. Mm. I, can't, I, I haven't been to the doctor nearly a quarter that many times probably <laughs> in my whole life. We gotta do better, bro. We gotta... 173 times over 15 years is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That's too many that doctor is... visits. That, you, you, you know it. You know it at that point. At this time, Europe was gearing up for the beginning of World War One Part Two, mm-hmm. and London was in financial turmoil. Christie signed up as a volunteer member of the War Reserve Police. Mm-hmm. So they were gonna, as the fighting men were leaving Britain for Germany, as World War Two was about to get started. Uh, They were going to be short on police officers, so he signed up. Since Germany was set to pounce and devour, no one was worried about doing background checks on police officers, (laughs) which, if one was run, certainly would have put the kibosh on his eligibility to serve. Mm -hmm. He received his uniform as a special constable for Harrow Road Police Station and remained there for four of the happiest years of his life. Christie finally had a purpose and he was damn near religious about upholding the law, which earned him the nickname the Himmler of Rillington. He loved his authority and adored wearing his uniform, just like when he was a little scoutmaster. Of course, the creep also used this position of power to stalk women and keep extensive files on them, which he would keep for several years. To patrol his immediate neighborhood, he drilled peepholes in his walls and would run down every offense no matter how small the crime. Mm. He took himself way too seriously. Mm. A super cop. Mm. (laughs) Right? Talk about Jackie Chan. Christie was a narcissist, and he took full advantage of his wife's frequent trips to visit relatives by finding women who responded to his advances. It was during this time he really started exploring his fucked up fetishes. He developed a strong relationship with a woman at the police station. Her husband was off fighting the Nazis. So when Ethel was away with relatives, he was sure to be at her place. When the husband returned on leave unexpectedly, he had enough evidence to be granted a divorce, naming Christie as the reason, and more immediately he beat the shit out of Reg and threw him out of his house. Mm. Afterwards, Christie would start inviting women to his place instead. Yeah, so he'll get his ass kicked again. Yeah. So G.I. Joe doesn't come <laughs> home and fucking Honestly, whoop him. honestly, he deserved that ass whooping. Yeah. Because the chick's Mary, first of all. Yeah. And you're not supposed to be fucking with Mary chicks. It's not not allowed. Yeah, so in their house. That's two. That's strike two. It ain't no more strikes. You're out of them. Yeah, you, you beat his ass. It's you couldn't do this shit at uh, your crib in the first place? It's beer league softball rules. Two strikes, you're out. Mm. It, but the woman bogus too, but we ain't talking about her because she probably don't know what happened to her. Did she get her ass kicked as well? Probably. Okay. It was the 40s, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he probably did have a little bit of PTSD. In the spring of 1948, 10 years after the Christies moved into the ground floor at 10 Rillington, Timothy Evans and his young wife Beryl moved into the third floor apartment. Beryl. I don't know how to say it. Oh. It's B E R Y L. Oh, I was like, Beryl? It's either Beryl or Burl. Okay. And the only other Burl I know is, is Burl Ives. Mm, well, we're going to go with Beryl in. Beryl. You want to go with Beryl? They'd been married less than a year and were expecting their first little baby. Beryl was 19 and very tiny. Timothy was 24 and drove a van for a living. Tim was born in a mining town called Merthyr Vale in South Wales and was borderline illiterate. He was abandoned by his father before he was even born. 
As a child, Timothy threw uncontrollable temper tantrums and could not get along with his mother, who had remarried a man named Probert. Hmm. As such, Timothy moved in with his grandmother, who couldn't keep him in school. Evans had a reputation for being a habitual liar, was prone to self-aggrandizing fantasies, and had an IQ of around 70, which made him borderline retarded. That, that habitual lying shit, bro. That's what about lying about stupid shit too. That shit makes that doesn't even mad. matter. Yeah. yeah, bro. Like <laughs> I forget what that's called. Um, and they and they will bring it up. Leah just had like four cups of water. So and why is he telling me that? And why are you lying about it? And why did you even bring that up? Like why? Like what's good? Compulsive liar. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. They like tell. They like say stuff for no reason. Like, am I supposed to be impressed? Dude, I rolled up like 40 blunts. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I know, okay. And they smoke what? As an adult, Timothy Evans drank a lot, had poor impulse control, and a notorious temper. Mm -hmm. He ended up only sprouting to about 5'5 five, five and 140 pounds, which some think helped fuel his anger. Yeah, bro. He was labeled a runt, and his intellectual development stopped entirely at age 11. His best talent was his ability to lie imaginatively. His mom would say he had no confidence in himself and had to cover it up with lies. He met Beryl Thorley through a mutual friend who mm. set up the blind date. Thanks a lot for that. Mm. Two weeks later, they were engaged. Two more weeks, they were married. They lived for a while with Evans's mother, Mrs. Probert, and mm. Beryl grew close with her sister's-in-law. In their opinion, Beryl was just as mentally incompetent as their brother, and they did everything they could to help her. Beryl had no mother herself, so she saw them as her security blanket. Mm. But when Beryl got pregnant, the crowded apartment couldn't handle the extra person, so the couple moved to Rillington before the baby was due. Mm -hmm. It was actually Timothy's sister Eileen who found the place and even helped them furnish and decorate. Eileen had a strong memory of the downstairs neighbor Reg Christie. He may have had cruel intentions for her. One afternoon, Christy appeared out of nowhere in the Evans' apartment while Eileen was alone and decorating. He'd offered her a cup of tea, and Eileen declined. Christy made no immediate move to leave the apartment, so Eileen said her brother was due back any second. Mm. Christy disappeared as suddenly as he'd come, and it wouldn't be until much later that Eileen would learn what offering his victim's tea meant. Mm, she was going to get knocked out. When the baby was born, they named her Geraldine. Tim's wages couldn't cover the bills, and this put a strain on the marriage. Also, Beryl was a terrible housekeeper and cook, and would often neglect baby Geraldine. The couple frequently fought, more mm -hmm. often than not with closed fists. In 1949, a friend of Beryl's named Lucy Endicott came to stay with the couple. Timothy mm -hmm. was supposed to be starting a job in France, which would pay more but take him away from his family, and Lucy was going to help with the baby while he was away. But this supposed French job was one of Tim's fanciful lies. So, Lucy and Beryl shared the bed, and Timothy was kicked out to the kitchen floor. Mm. But soon, the little 17-year-old Lucy caught Tim's lustful eye. She started getting involved in the couple's arguments, and things finally got so bad that Tim's mother, Mrs. Probert, mm. had to step in and say that Lucy couldn't live with her adult son and daughter-in-law in their own apartment. Timothy, outraged, told his mom he'd rather throw Beryl out the window than Damn. have Lucy move out, so he moved with Lucy to another apartment. Yeah. She found him far too violent, and he was right back in with his wife and daughter a couple weeks later. <laughs> Talk about throwing motherfuckers out the window and shit? Yeah. That's violent as fuck. That's violent. 
Yeah. And you know he wasn't playing when he said that shit. No. Sheesh, no. With an IQ that low, he was speaking his feelings. Yes. Yep. Tim and Beryl were growing more in debt every day, and their marriage was devoid of joy. To Beryl's abject horror, she soon found herself pregnant with baby number two. She tried all kinds of pills and douches to abort the fetus. Damn. Her husband Tim didn't see what the big deal was with another kid. He didn't understand that they couldn't afford another baby, <laughs> and no one would hire a pregnant woman to work mm -hmm. part-time so they could keep up with their already mounting debt. She was determined to abort and told everyone about it, including the Christies. Around the same time, the Christies were complaining to the landlord about the state of the rundown house. On Halloween, there were several workmen there to rip out and replace rotting floors and walls. In addition, the other tenant in the house, Mr. Kitchener, was out of town, and his apartment on the second floor would be empty for about five weeks. Yeah, rotting floors and rotting walls, though? Dude, these are disgusting slum. Did they just not now tripped about that? Well, they just moved. There was in, a but... little thing called an entire war in Europe going on. Oh yeah, on. that's right. They were broke. They were broke. They uh, there was houses that were bombed all the, around. That's just wasn't their first priority. Yes. All right, I get it. Stiff upper lip. Stiff upper lip. <laughs> get her done. Yeah. <laughs> in early November, a murder occurred in which there are two distinct versions of events we're gonna start with the first one mm -hmm. christy claimed he saw beryl evans on tuesday november 8th around noon he spotted her leaving with her baby and then never saw them again mm. christy was naturally concerned as he knew the girl's determination to abort her pregnancy he'd even warned her that the pills she took could do her serious damage he was also afraid that timothy was too rough on his wife Beryl looked like she was running for her life as she left that day. Mm. At midnight that very night, the Christies were awakened by a loud thump overhead. Then they heard the sound of something heavy being dragged around. Mr. Kitchener was out of town, of course, so that eliminated him from being the cause of the racket. It had to have come from the third floor. There were no further noises, so the Christies went right back to sleep. The next day, Timothy said Beryl had gone to Bristol without telling anyone of her plans. Mm. Another day passed, and Evans went downstairs to visit with the Christies. He was heated with his boss and said he'd just quit, and he was about to sell all of his furniture and follow his wife to Bristol. Mm. He did exactly that. He still owed a large debt on the furniture, so he didn't get as much as he wanted, and he gave the furniture broker a fake address in Bristol where he was moving. <laughs> he left by train, but not to Bristol, to his aunt's house in his hometown of Merthyr Vale. Mm. Evans stayed there for six days, during that time, he began to wonder where the hell his daughter was, so on November 23rd, he returned to 10 Rillington to talk with Christy. He didn't go to his mom or sisters, who were also very concerned. Mm. He just spoke with Christy and then hopped back on the trail to Merthyr Vale. Mm. See. Now that was the Christy version of events, okay? This yeah, is like the generally yeah, accepted version mm. of events. Like, this is, the, this is the version they went to trial with. Christie's and this is the part two is who's it's certainly on Evans's side who's who's who and this who's, is who's, this what? we are really at the tip of a giant two-part iceberg here this is a two-part episode mm -hmm. so that was the Christie version like we said yeah. including a whole hell of a lot of self back padding on his part warning just, her how dangerous I was just yeah oh. <laughs> I'm like dude shut the fuck up big eyes moving around yeah Hand waving. That's, that's probably the best. It. That's probably the best thing for him. He is lying. Oh, you don't even know. Yeah. 
I was worried. <laughs> I saw her leaving with yeah, the Yeah, I baby. saw her leaving. Get the fuck out of here, man. <laughs> in this other version, which was told in John Eddowes' book titled The Two Killers of Rillington Place, Beryl had told young Lucy Endicott that Mr. Christie had offered to perform the abortion himself. Mm. She had no way of knowing that Christie had no medical expertise and an even shadier past. To Beryl, Christie was just a friendly former police officer who had medical training and a first aid kit and was looking to help her out of a tough spot. Tim Evans found out about the plan on November 1st and told Christie straight out, we are not interested in your abortion. Christie tried easing Timothy's mind by saying he'd performed several abortions during his time as a war reserve officer <laughs> and even showed him a picture of himself in his spiffy uniform. <laughs> Timothy still refused. What a quack. When Timothy went upstairs to his wife, mm. Beryl told him in no uncertain terms that she trusted Christie and was going oh, to yeah. go forward with the procedure. Around noon the next day, Evans was at work and Beryl had Christie come upstairs. Construction men were working in the garden, in the washroom, and others were up redoing the roof. Beryl had laid out a quilt in front of the fireplace in preparation. Mm. Christie used gas through rubber tubing to knock her out, but at some point, Beryl started screaming and flailing, so Christy hit her repeatedly before strangling her with a cord. Mm. One of Beryl's friends, named Joan Vincent, came by at this time to visit and was shocked to see the usually open apartment door closed and her friend Beryl not home. She opened the door a little, but it was blocked by something. Although no one made a sound, Joan was certain there was someone on the other side of the door. After a shockingly long time to Christy, she finally went away. Timothy Evans came home that night to find Christy at the bottom of the stairs with a grim expression on his face. Mm. Reg told him to go upstairs and he'd follow. It's bad news. It didn't work. Christy pointed to the bedroom where Evans found his wife bleeding from the mouth, nose, and vagina. He didn't know what to do, so he went in the kitchen to feed Geraldine. Christy explained that Beryl likely died from septic poisoning since she'd tried so many different pills and concoctions to have an abortion. He continued saying that going to the cops would be the absolute biggest mistake he could ever make. It would only get both of them in trouble for manslaughter, and that wasn't fair. All Christie was trying to do was help. Christie acted holier than thou and proclaimed that Evans shouldn't even worry. He would do the brave thing and dispose of the body all by himself. So now both y'all look like murderers. Of course, he was not able to move the body by himself, and Evans had helped move his dead wife down to Mr. Kitchener's apartment, where they left her in the kitchen, hoping that Kitchener wouldn't be home for a few weeks. Evans wanted to take baby Gerald into his mom's place, but Christy talked him out of it, saying it would only rouse suspicion. He came up with a plan the next morning. He knew a young couple that would take care of the baby, and all Tim would have to do was explain that the baby's mother was on an extended vacation. Mm. The author Ludovic Kennedy says this is when Christie strangled Geraldine. She was never seen alive again. Reg placed the baby with her mother in Kitchener's kitchen. That day, Beryl's friend Joan Vincent came by again, still concerned. Christie met her at the stairs and said Beryl and Geraldine were gone, and it would be better for everyone if Joan didn't come by anymore. Christie, at this juncture, thought he had some sort of mystical powers of persuasion over Timothy Evans and told the man to sell his furniture and possessions to prepare for travel. The construction workers had finished up renovations in the washroom, so Christie moved the two bodies out to there. And Tim is dumb as fuck. Yeah. Because he should have just called the police. Once you see the shit didn't work, is she bleeding out? Because you don't know. You could probably save her. Probably. We don't know what. Get us some help. Yeah. 
Yeah, don't listen to your neighbor when he says but hey, you also that said would be a bad dude, idea. You also said Tim was kind of... He was an abusive asshole that would punch but, her and stuff. You didn't say he was stupid, though, did he? Timothy yeah, is stupid. Christy's smart. Yeah. Okay, right, okay, okay. Timothy's dumb. Yeah. He's, he's well, easily yeah. manipulated. Dude. Oh, my God. Especially yeah. by somebody like... Somebody that he sees as smart and like was a police officer and stuff. Mm-hmm. He's like... Pfft. Well, that's a trustworthy bastion of the community right but there. But why not, though? That's how police are supposed to be. You're supposed to be able to see him and be like, man, this is a person that knows what they're talking about. But unfortunately, bro, you can't trust the police. The next day, there's a record of Christy going to one of his doctors with brand new excruciating back pain. So mm. how about that? A little evidence as to how Dude, he probably moved the bodies. Through his back out. On November 23rd, Evans came back from the Vale asking about his daughter, and Reggie said, You've got to leave, or we're fucked. Don't come back here for two or three weeks, and then you can have your daughter Geraldine back. She's safe. She's with the young couple. They're taking real good care of her. It's fine, Evans. Just just go ahead, Evans. Forced to be satisfied with that answer, Tim got back on the train, headed back to his aunt's place, where he would tell many lies about his wife's whereabouts and condition. So those are the two versions of events. Either one could be true, mm-hmm. or neither could be true. And there's barely a scrap of direct evidence to corroborate them against. So it's just two guys' mm-hmm. words against each other. One of them's very stupid. Mm-hmm. One of but, them's pretty smart. Yeah, And that's the scary part, too, man. Because you can easily manipulate a situation where you're smarter than somebody. As far as, not smarter than somebody, but that low on the, the scale, the I spectrum, know. bro? Like, come on. I know. And is, was that diagnosed that he's that dumb? Yeah. Oh, then, bro, it's a no-brainer for me. And for him, because he's got no brain. Mm-hmm. And again, especially again, and we probably got to get to the end. If you keep saying the same story, bro, for somebody that's incompetent. Like, it looks coached. Yeah. It looks well, rehearsed. It looks manipulated. That's it. Yeah, it looks planted. But if everybody's saying the same story, now that shit look coached, too. That's true. Oh, ooh. Like, no, nah, you're lying, bro. Timothy Evans' mother, Mrs. Probert, finally decided to check in on her son, daughter-in-law, and granddaughter. Mm -hmm. She went to their place and talked with Mr. Christie, who of course told her not to worry so much. They were a young couple and they were prone to flights of fancy. Next, Mrs. Probert called her sister in Merthyr Vale and learned that Tim had been staying with her, awaiting Beryl's arrival. The shrewd Mrs. Probert knew there were lies afoot. The apartment was empty to furniture, and Beryl and the baby were nowhere to be found. Mm. In the veil, Evan's aunt called his ass out. Since Tim had almost no wits about him, it wasn't long before he was in the Merthyr police station with an (laughs) odd confession. I disposed of my wife. I put her down the drain. Police didn't know what to make of this bombshell initially. Evans didn't outright admit to killing anyone, but what he did admit to certainly needed to be looked into. No wonder they just send him home after that. <laughs> no. Evans continued to repeat that he didn't kill her, but she was indeed dead. Mm-hmm. Even after all this, he was afraid to sully Reg Christie's reputation by bringing up his name, so he said a stranger had given him something to abort the fetus in barrel. He gave the bottle to his wife, but warned her not to use them. That day, however, when he returned from work, he found her dead on the floor. He went to check on baby Geraldine and wondered what to do next. If he went to the police, he'd be the prime suspect, after all. Mm. The next morning, he said he dumped his wife's body headfirst down the drain near the back garden and then went to work to put in his notice 
and finally arranged someone to look after his baby while he was away in Merthyr Vale hiding. What he wanted more than anything right now, he said, was for police to find Beryl's body and baby Geraldine so that they could get this situation all over with and resolved. That don't sound like a serial killer, bro. Certainly not. And it certainly sounds like he's very worried about his daughter. Because yeah. he, you know, mm-hmm. he thinks she's still with us. While Evans sat in holding in Merthyr Vale, detectives in Notting Hill were sent out to Ten Rillington to find Beryl's remains. Right off the bat, they knew something was off, as it took three of the strongest detectives to lift the manhole cover off the drain, and he supposedly said he did it by himself. Mm. Then, once they had it off, they realized, well, there's no body in here. Evans feigned amazement at this discovery back in Merthyr Vale, but quickly changed his story to tell the truth, because... He's a halfwit. Mm, he's a halfwit. <laughs> it was time for him to finally involve Reg Christie. Yeah, bro. Now it all makes sense. That's what they're going to say. Like, yeah, bro. It was no stranger that gave the pills now, Timothy said. It was his trusted neighbor and confidant, Reg Christie. And he'd helped him lift the manhole cover to put Barrel down it. Evan said he only took all the blame initially to protect the former police officer's reputation. Mm-hmm. Beryl wanted to try the pills, and when Tim left for work on November 8th, she took them. And when Tim returned, he found his wife bleeding from every orifice and very dead. As Evans kept repeating his story, he also kept adding new nuggets. It wasn't until the third time around that he brought up Mr. Kitchener's kitchen and the fact that he'd helped move his wife's body because Christie was far too weak. Police investigated 10 Rillington, but it was pretty much a cursory glance over the garden grounds. Mm. They didn't even notice the human thigh bone that was propping up the garden fence, for instance. Or, while they were there, they didn't notice Christie's dog dig up a human skull, which Christie quickly tossed into a neighbored, bombed-out building. When it was (laughs) discovered later, there was endless talk about who the poor air raid victim had been. Just talking to her and picking up, but yeah, so, um, you looking through there? Dude, that's crazy. I guess it seemed like to me when you go to the scene, you would be more alert. What the cops did manage to find in Timothy and Beryl's mostly empty apartment was strange. In a pile of papers by the window were clippings from a newspaper about a torso murderer who was famous at the time, and his name was Stanley Setti. Hmm. This was absurd, as Timothy couldn't read and everybody knew it. There was a stolen briefcase which Evans was charged with to get him back to London, but the clippings were so outrageous that they were ignored completely. It was like somebody planted them or something mm-hmm. to make it look like he was a, a crazy killer, a strangler. Yeah, what's the name of the dude again? The famous serial killer at the time? Stanley Setti. Okay. Maybe we'll cover him one day. Yeah, of course we will. Old Stanley. Old Stanley. Stanley Stevers, killer, blue. That's right, Stan. You owe us like $5,000 for that ad, Stan. A <laughs> good one. Christie was also invited down to the station for questioning. The interview lasted six hours, and by the end, the cops had basically accepted him as one of their own. Reg dismissed Evans' accusations as ludicrous, and Christie went on to describe the violence in the Evans' marriage. So he basically manipulated mm-hmm. the police right to and his side. they still side. trying to give him evidence. And I'll tell y'all what, he beat her all the time. Mm-hmm. With Beryl and the baby still unaccounted for, and another day gone by, the police went back to search Rillington a bit harder. They started in the back garden and tried to get the wash house open, but it was stuck. Ethel Christie brought out a shim for them when they got it open. Inside it was pitch dark, and it smelled like death. 
There was a pile of wood leaned up against the sink. When an officer reached his arm behind it, he felt something. Moving the wood, they revealed a package wrapped in a gingham tablecloth and tied shut with a nylon cord. I'm not reaching my hand behind nothing, bro. Not, I'll move the wood first. Thank you. That's all I'm saying, bro. Definitely do your job, but there's smarter ways to do it. Or I'll take out my phone camera, <laughs> take a picture of it, <laughs> see what's going yeah, on. Yeah. But this is 1948. Yep, you're right. <laughs> That's funny, you know, I do that. Unwrapping the package, police finally found Beryl. Further searching, found the baby Geraldine decaying behind some more wood behind the door. Yeah. Both had been obviously strangled, and there was a man's tie still left tighter on the baby's throat. That's fucked up. Autopsy revealed that both had been dead for at least three weeks. Beryl had bruising all over her right eye and lip as if she were struck, and the job was finished with some kind of cord. There was no evidence in her system that she'd taken anything at all to try and abort her pregnancy, but there was bruising inside her vagina. For some fucking reason, the coroner didn't do any swabs for semen. The police asked their new pal Christy to ID the clothing found on the victims. He knew the blouse and skirt were barrels, but said he didn't know who the tie belonged to, but he thought he saw Timothy Evans wearing it once or twice. Stop it. On the day Evans was transported from the Vale to London, all he was told was that he was going to be questioned regarding the stolen briefcase found in his apartment. Mm. When they pulled up to the station, however, it was clear from the throng of reporters and photographers that he was being arrested for murder. He was shown the pile of clothing with the tie on top and was told the fate of his wife, which he already knew, and his daughter, which he did not. His eyes welled with tears as he grabbed the tie that killed his baby. <laughs> his baby. <laughs> After he recovered for a few minutes, Evans was questioned all through the night. He gave two more full confessions to Notting Hill police. In one of them, he said he killed her because she kept running up debt. They fought about it, he hit her, then he strangled her with some rope. He wrapped the body in tablecloth and took her to Kitchener's apartment. At midnight on November 8th, he moved the body to the wash house. In the morning, he went to quit his job, then came home and strangled Geraldine with his tie, hiding her body in the washroom as well. The author Kennedy Ludovic points out that Evans couldn't have moved the bodies on those days because the construction workers were in and out of there all day on the 9th and would have noticed the body-shaped package. Kennedy also posits that the full confession used words well beyond Evans' comprehension, and if he killed his daughter, he would have sold her pram and high chair with all the other furniture. Instead, he gave them to Christie to give along to the new couple who were watching Geraldine for him. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. He certainly wouldn't have held on to the high chair and mm -hmm. pram. Those are high-value items. Everyone's always having babies. Those are always going to move. Yeah, Use those forever. Clean them up and get them out. Absolutely. His second confession was a painstakingly slow recreation of the entire week leading up to the murder. He twice said he locked the bodies in the washroom door on November 8th, and there is proof that the washroom was unlocked. And the wood he used to hide the body was already in the washroom on the 8th. That wood hadn't been pulled up from the floors until the 11th, and the carpenter specifically remembered Christie asking for the wood. Hmm. Evans also said in every version of his confessions that he left the cord around Beryl's neck, but her murder weapon was never found. There was no cord around her neck when they found her. Author Kennedy believes the police coached Evans, or at the very least edited his confession to fit their needs. People who feel cornered or are looking for relief will often admit to crimes they didn't commit. Hmm. It's not unlikely at all that this happened here, especially with Evans' diminished intellect. 
On January 11, 1950, Evans was tried for the murder of his baby and not his wife, but his wife's murder was completely allowed to be talked about. Christmas Humphreys was the prosecutor, and he relied on Reg Christie as his star witness. What he wanted to do was discredit any argument put forward by the defense where Beryl could have started the fight, which would drop the charge from murder to manslaughter. Mm -hmm. The prestigious law firm Freeboro Slack and Company took up the defense of Evans, but never did any investigating of their own. They thought their client was too obviously guilty to waste resources running down leads. They never questioned Joan Vincent, who had stopped by twice after the murders, or the Carpenters, and they never looked into Christie's criminal record. So the law firm? The, his lawyer. Pro bono? Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes more sense. Because I'm like, dude, if I'm paying you, Oof. you better go do that investigation, bro. Absolutely. I wonder what made him want to do the shit pro bono if he already thought he was guilty. Any or all of these would have provided more than enough reasonable doubt for any jury in the land. Mm -hmm. The cherry on the cake was the prosecution had not one, not two, not three, but four signed confessions from Tim Evans, along with scraps of evidence to back it up. Malcolm Morris, the lawyer assigned to Evans from Freeboro Slack & Co., was working on an insanity defense initially, that didn't hold up as there was no evidence to prove it. Helpfully, Evans kept repeating to his lawyer that he was sure the police would beat the shit out of him if he didn't give this confessions, and that would certainly invalidate anything mm -hmm. he'd said. But Evans kept insisting it was his neighbor Christie that was responsible, and Morris thought they would have a way too hard a time trying to pin it on that literal Boy Scout. Still, he served his client well and began preparing that defense. Mm, not well, though, but... Yeah, he started preparing yeah. <laughs> With what he had. Yeah. They basically, yeah. the case file they gave him was basically a skinny piece of paper Ooh. that said, try insanity. He was like, damn, that, that's what the paper said? Yeah, from his boss. <gasps> try insanity. Yeah, this ain't going to work any other way. And, and and at this time, all the other serial killer tricks and trade wasn't exist. Mm -hmm. It didn't exist yet. They didn't even have the word serial killer yet. Okay, well, yeah. So that's okay. exactly. Yeah. yeah. The prosecution presented the following case. Evans and his wife were not getting along, and when Timothy lost his job, he became depressed. Then he snapped and killed his wife and daughter, telling lies to everyone he knew about where they were. When the prosecution's star witness Christie was called to the stand, his effusiveness impressed people. He gave pleasant, thoughtful testimony peppered with references to himself as both a hero and a victim in it. It was a hell of a difference between the stumbling, guilt-ridden presentation that Evans had put on the stand. Christie made sure the jury knew about his service during World War I and his police service during World War II. His voice was pleasant and quiet, and it seemed this virtuous man was only trying his absolute hardest to be helpful. Morris attempted to show another side. At the last minute, he had learned of Christie's criminal past and had tried to bring that out. But the fact that Christie had been on the straight and narrow for the past 17 years further impressed the court. A man who could have gone bad had turned it all around. Mm -hmm. Oddly, Morris raised the issue of the construction workers, but did not himself check into the facts. Christie told several lies to make it look as if the wood had been available to Evans earlier than it had, but that meant that Evans had dragged Beryl over a floor that had been torn up. Was that true? Christie could not make a definitive point, but he took the opportunity to play up his ailments, like his bad back and his uh, his bad lungs, for which there was no medical proof. He played to the sympathies of the jury to deflect them away from Morris's line of questioning. 
This motherfucker, bro. For yes. some unexplained reason, Herschel, no one thought to call the furniture dealer, whom Evans said Christie had referred him to, mm. to determine if the man knew Christie had spoken to him before buying Evans' furniture. Mm. That would have been a telling point and a clear indication that Christie was lying. Evans claimed to be innocent, but it was believed by the general public that he was trying to save himself by throwing the blame on Christie. Since Evans was already a known liar, and since he conducted himself poorly in the witness box, he proved to be less than convincing. He claimed that he had not known of his daughter's death until he was shown her clothing in the Notting Hill police station. Personally, that I, I uh, believe that too. Mm. Her demise stripped him of all hope, so he had capitulated into a false confession. He was so afraid that the police would beat him up to get him to confess, so he had spared himself physical abuse by just telling them what they wanted to hear. The last thing he noted was that he felt he should protect Christie, but he failed to adequately explain why. He also couldn't say why Christy had killed his wife and daughter, other than to say, well, Christy was home all day. The author Kennedy claims that Evans, being unable to read, had mixed up the exhibits and made statements about his demeanor during certain confessions that were inaccurate. Ooh. That confusion further turned the jury against him. Ooh. His reasons for confessing appeared to be absurd. How had he managed to describe the murders in such accurate detail? He said that the police had given him enough information to do so. Just to go back. Go. He, his demeanor. And that's why I love hate text. Like, yeah, you could get what you need out real fast, but. Tone. Yeah. Somebody might read it a little different. Maybe they frame of mind. They're not getting the sarcasm. Yeah. The dry oh. wit. Yeah, bro. They don't think it's funny. They think you're yeah. just being a jerk. <laughs> they don't think it's funny. They, 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 you're right. I've definitely probably sent a lot of those texts. But no, and I don't even, I don't mean it like that. I get you. Yeah. The prosecution's closing speech lasted less than 10 minutes. Christie had been too ill at the time to have done what Evans claimed, and also, Christie had no motive for doing it. Evans' guilt was obvious. Defense attorney Morris was unprepared for such a short speech. He had expected to have overnight to get his notes together, but nope, judge called him up. He had to go. He locked on to the idea that at no time until he was directly told did Evans mention that his daughter was dead. He only confessed it after being shown the evidence, whereas he had talked freely of disposing of his wife's body. Morris emphasized Evans' second confession in which Christie was implicated. Much of the information in that statement, he pointed out, could not have been made up by an uneducated man. Yeah, his name coming up too much. At one point in the confession, mm -hmm. he talks about a medical book that Christie had. How the fuck would Evans know about a medical book that Christie had when he can't even read the funny papers? That makes no sense. <laughs> I can't even read the funny papers. Oh, this... Morris reminded the jury that they mm -hmm. did not have to say that Christie was guilty in order to say that there was doubt that mm -hmm. Evans did it. The case didn't have to be resolved today. You just didn't have to sentence a possibly innocent man. It took the jury only 40 minutes to reach a verdict. Guilty. Evans was swiftly condemned to die. Christie in the courtroom burst into crocodile tears. Outside, Mrs. Probert shouted at Christie, Murderer! Murderer! Mrs. Christie defended him as a good man. I mean... Although he stuck to his story and tried one attempt at an appeal, Evans went quietly to the gallows on March 9th mm -hmm. that very same year. But this story ain't over, Herschel. Mm -mm, ain't seen nothing yet. We're coming back next week with the part two that'll make you want to slap mm -hmm. your mama. 
So that's two advertisements we've done. <laughs> one for Stanley Steaming and one for uh, Slap Your Mama. Does that a two of Slap Your Mama? It's a hot sauce, isn't it? No, nah, that was like that. Took, that came from um, next Friday or Friday at Friday at the Nick. Wait, that's not even real. No, nah, I think they were just saying that. I thought Slap Your Mama. Yeah. So Why good, it makes so you want to slap, you you slap your mama. It might be real now, Herschel. You think they somebody might uh, draw some? I swear, I think I just saw on a commercial on it. Yeah. All right. But I could be crazy. That's what we do around here. That is what we do. What did you think of part one? Man, part one is crazy, bro. This dude is a manipulative bastard. But I like the fact that... Reginald you, Christie. Yeah. I He's like how fuck. you're doing it, though. I like how you... Hey, which one do you think? Which one? Who knows? Because it... But then it, it's the thing, too, on Christie's behalf. Like, bro, how can I, like, you going to blame me for being smarter than him? Yeah. And that's unfair. And because I'm home, all of a sudden, I'm the one that had yeah. to have done this. And it is unfair. You know what I'm saying? But this dude, but again, if they say this dude can't do some shit and he's doing it, then it, it, do, it does look weird, bro. Well, guess what? Part two is going to turn the whole fucking thing on its ear, Herschel. You got manhole covers. One person can't do that. Like you said, it took three. So there's, a, there's another person in this. And, and Christy name keep coming up. And that's what I would be suspicious about. I love it. Like, I wish you were a police back then in England. No, they'll probably try to sit me down, though. You know what I mean. Like, no, nah, that can't be it. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, like you said, bro, it's the 50s. Oh, well. Yeah. It's the fucking 50s. Hey. <laughs> the, the, the fucking 50s. Awful. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for all of us here at Bumblebutt Podcast X. My name has been Adam. A-bomb. That's been Herschel. H-bomb. We appreciate your continued listenership. Yes, sir. And we hope to, uh, you know. Yeah, we know. See you again. <laughs> Talk to you later. Yep. Bye. Bye.